Hello and welcome to Giving Connect, Philanthropy Australia's latest podcast. In this series, we'll seek to explore some of the key themes that help illuminate how successful grant making works. Our host for each episode is Ben Clark, Head of Philanthropy and Social Investment at Australian Executive Trustees. Our special guest today is Dr. Suzanne Walsh, the 19th President of Bennett College, one of two historically black colleges for women in the United States. Before Dr. Walsh took on that role, she served as the Deputy Director for Post-Secondary Success with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Dr. Walsh's previous work also includes service at two other prominent foundations, Lumina Foundation in Indianapolis, where she managed the Making Opportunity Affordable initiative, which was aimed at increasing college productivity by bringing about fundamental change in the way higher education does business and also the Heinz Endowments in Pittsburgh, where her diverse portfolio included community colleges, universities, workforce development, tech commercialisation and transfer, city-country consolidation, immigration and regional economic development. Dr Walsh has an honorary doctorate from Johnson C. Smith University. She earned a Juris Doctorate and a Master's in Social Work from Case Western Reserve University, a Bachelor's Degree from Cornell, and an associate's degree in applied science from Hudson Valley Community College. Welcome, Suzanne, and over to you, Ben. Gosh, what an incredible CV that you've got there. I was I was actually in preparation for today's discussion, doing a bit of research as one should, and, and I got this great quote from, I think, an opening address that you were giving at a university over there about, I'm a great learner, not a great student. Clearly, your, uh, your CV would suggest otherwise, but I'd love you to give some context around that journey that you've been on and what's brought you to your current role as uh, president of, of Bennett. That's such a great question. I am really not a great student because when I think about being a student, I think about it as, and this sounds ironic because I am the president of a college, but I think about being a student as sometimes going into class and being expected to just repeat like rote memorization. And I'm not very good at that, but I'm very good at learning and taking bits and pieces of information and connecting them to places that nobody else necessarily thinks they go. And I like to apply what I'm learning. And a lot of times as a student, you don't get to apply it. So that brings me on my journey, which is, you know, in philanthropy in particular, and even as in higher education, one's job is basically to constantly learn because there's constantly new information. There's constantly new people. There's constantly new settings. And if you're too stuck in being the expert at one thing and not always open to those new ideas and making connections, it's quite difficult, I think, to be effective in philanthropy or to be effective in higher education or or education at all. So I think I just took my life and applied it somehow to work. Incredibly relevant in today's environment, coming off the back of a really interesting time in the US from, I guess, a government perspective, from a public health perspective and from a social perspective. What do you perceive as some of the most pressing issues for philanthropy and non-profits in the US to address in, in 2021? Well, you know, a lot of people in states are talking about the twin pandemics, uh, coronavirus, as well as racial justice. And I think those continue to be issues. But what I started talking about when I started my job, the world is a VUCA environment and VUCA is from the U.S. military. It means volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. 
And I actually think that's the next big thing that philanthropy and nonprofits have to think about is yes, the coronavirus is, is a challenge and yes, racial equity is a challenge, but they're just subsets of VUCA. They're subsets of a world where that is constantly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And so what I think we have to do in both philanthropy and at nonprofits is we have to figure out how do we help people navigate that? Because this is not going to be the last pandemic. It's not going to be the last summer of uprisings, at least in the States, related to racial injustice. And so if we can actually help people and organizations to learn how to navigate those worlds, navigate those uncertainties, we will be much better positioned across the board. And we have to do that in an equitable way. Is there a specific example you can give of philanthropy doing a good job in, in navigating the complexity of the twin pandemics? Or, you know, mm. we can even bring it down to a specific issue that you've seen in your capacity, either at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or, or Bennett? One of the things that I did as president when the pandemic started was I reached out to one of my colleagues who's still at the Gates Foundation and his expertise is infectious disease. And I asked him for help to just say, you know, like, I don't understand, I'm not an expert on public health, can you help me navigate this? And what was interesting was ordinarily in the States, what one would do as a nonprofit would be you would go to a foundation and you would, you know, you're, you're asking for money and you're asking for it in silos. So I'm not sure how funding works in Australia, but in, in the States, it is very siloed. In other words, there, there are foundations and there are people within foundations who just do public health. And then there are the, and it's maybe just global. And then there are people who just do higher education. And so the silos had to come down. And what he was able to do was to help me with information, not money, but he helped me with critical information to be able to not only navigate the pandemic, but his specialty is he understands communities of color. So he could help me specifically because my student population is uh, women of color, primarily black women. He could say, oh, yes, here's how you think about this in terms of black women. Here are the kinds of information that you need to take into consideration. So what I think philanthropy sometimes forgets is that philanthropy has information to share, not just money. And sometimes I think those of us who are seeking to interact with philanthropy forget that there's actually an opportunity to get information, which is highly coveted. And quite frankly, if I had had to pay for it, I couldn't have afforded it. But I, I always want for people to remember that philanthropy is not always just money. There's actually so much more that I think philanthropy can do and sometimes are not asked. That insight and principle around collaboration is, is so critical and something that I think domestically in Australia, we, we, we're fortunate in part probably because we're comparatively small size to see a bit of. And some of the numbers that we're, we're seeing out of the US is, is kind of counterintuitive in some way because we perceive that the volatility of the markets, the contraction of the employment markets and you know, the impact of the pandemic and almost shutting societies down is that there was quite a big spike into donor-advised funds in the US. I think Schwab Charitable and Fidelity are reporting somewhere in the vicinity of 40 to 50% increase in donations into those vehicles and similarly donations out of those vehicles to charitable causes. What are some of your observations around, I guess, the U.S. culture of giving in this environment of, of stress? It's so interesting 
there's multiple themes that I probably cannot pre-categorize, so let me, but I'll try. I think there's a set of more thoughtful investments currently, like sort of, you know, February, March, where more interesting and more thoughtful investments in things related to racial justice now than maybe the earliest investments. So the earliest investments, the way I would characterize those were, that was more like almost straight charity. You know, it was like, let me write the check. And now what I'm seeing is really much more thoughtful. Was it slower? Yeah. But is it better in terms of being sustainable investments and really thoughtful? Yes. So an example would be McKinsey Scott, formerly Bezos. She just made a bunch of billions of dollars of investments in all different kinds of organizations in the States. And what I thought was brilliant was no one even knew that she was looking at them. And she very deliberately worked with her team to say, what are the communities we could go to where we could have a real impact? And what are the organizations? So the communities had to be communities that were struggling in terms of socioeconomics. There had to be a, a sizable sort of population that could be helped. Then the organizations that she invested in had to be organizations that had some stability, that also by receiving this investment, it would be catalytic for that organization. And there were no strings attached. There were no applications made. These were mostly organizations led by people of color or dedicated to communities of color across the U.S. Unbelievable and so radical, I think, in terms of an approach to philanthropy, because what she understood was there has to be capacity building. If we want to be able to invest in organizations or communities of color, they haven't had the same capacity building. They don't always have the same uh, experience in receiving large investments. And so I think that what she did was brilliant. So there is an investment in capacity that I think is very interesting. There was a recognition that we have to make it seamless. It has to be easy to get the money to these organizations. We don't want to burden them because given the pandemic or the twin pandemics, this was going to be important. So I think she's really setting a tone. I think that's really important. I think the other, uh, in terms of individual donors, we're seeing more donors of color in the U.S. making contributions. And so their giving is actually very different giving in some ways. Uh, what they message with it, what they're looking for, full disclosure, one of our board members at Bennett College, her name's Kwanzaa Jones, her husband, Jose Feliciano, they graduated from Princeton University. They made a major investment there. And their investment Along with it came a letter from Kwanzaa that said, please remove the name of Woodrow Wilson from a building because of his racist practices. So, you know, I'm just, I'm seeing all of these different ways of addressing racial inequities, whether it's a direct investment in a community of color, color whether it's an investment like Kwanzaa and her husband made that allows them to change the conversation, that allows them to influence a really large university that people might've said was immovable. Uh, and then the last thing that I would say is, again, like, what are we seeing over time? I think we are also seeing which foundations are able to be the most nimble and which ones <laughs> don't have that ability. So I sit on the board of a foundation called Trellis Foundation, and that leadership team has been incredibly responsive to what are the needs in Texas, the, our focus is in Texas. And as our grantees are saying, our students, because it's higher ed related, our students are struggling with food insecurity or they're struggling with 
access to technology, areas that we may not have been prioritizing originally as a foundation, we now are able to shift quickly. So I think that's the other thing is that we shifted quickly to be responsive to the needs of the community. And so I'm seeing that again, now I'm seeing that, but in the beginning, I would say it was a lot of charity. I'm really interested in this idea of kind of the agility of philanthropy. In your observations, what are those barriers for those philanthropies that aren't as agile? Is it is it literally things like the, the governing documents and the trustees, or is it the mindset of the trustees? I think it's a combination of things. You know, I think that there are places that would say we can't do it because the trustees won't allow us or the board won't allow us. But did you ask? Like, that's the thing at Trellis. Trellis, the leadership team said, well, in theory, no, we can't do this, but actually we're going to ask. And we're going to ask the board and we're going to say, here's what we think and why we think that. So I think sometimes it's also staff. Like if you're not willing to take that risk to at least ask up the chain, you know, the trustees may never hear if the frontline staff who are really in those conversations don't share that. So I think it's it's at all levels. Interestingly, what I've seen is in some ways, the bigger the problems, the more conservative foundations become and the less willing they are to take risks. I think that's another challenge is which foundations are willing to take risks and which aren't. The very first foundation that I worked at in the States was called the Heinz Endowments. So pickles, you know, ketchup, baked beans. And I loved that as my very first foundation, especially because the focus was just on Southwestern Pennsylvania. And at that time, there was almost like a clear ecosystem of funders. And we were the foundation where we could jump off first. We didn't have to come to her and the board with a bunch of data. I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but like we didn't have to bring data and make the perfect case and have the theory of change and all like all of these trappings that make people feel safe. If you could make the case for a very early stage idea, she'd say, yeah, yeah, go for it. Try it. And then we all knew the order of the other foundations in the community, like who was going to probably be the second foundation to fund after they saw us do it. And after they saw like, oh, that wasn't so scary. So then they had some, they had data to take to their board. Their board was a bit more comfortable and progressively to the to the boards that were actually least likely to jump off first, the ones who wanted like the solid, you know, randomized control trial. But what was beautiful was if we all got together in the beginning and said, this is what we're going to fund, you could sort of count on each other. So if somebody at one of those other foundations that was risk averse had an idea, they knew they could come talk to one of us at Heinz, even though they couldn't do it, but they could say, oh, could you try that out? So I don't have a great answer to your question because I think it de- the answer is it depends, which is not never a great answer. But I do think there are lessons about it's okay to have that whole ecosystem, but you have to work as an ecosystem to support each other. Otherwise, I think we get paralyzed to not take risks and to not invest in new partners. And that's exactly why communities of color are not invested in because that's seen as risky. Where's all the data to back it up? Oh, we don't have it. This is going to seem like a bit of a leading question, but I'm interested if you could make one change the way grant seekers and grant makers connect, what would it be? We just had a fantastic conversation with a potential funder a few weeks ago. And what I loved was they came to us and said, we're learning. We don't have all of the answers. 
and the kinds of grants that they want to make are grants where they can learn as a foundation. And I thought that's fantastic, like truly learn, not just fake learning. Cause you know, a lot of times in philanthropy, we may say we're learning, but we're really not. We really have opinions and we just want you to prove our point. But this was a genuine, like, we don't know the answer and we want a partner or partners to help us understand. And I think that's coming from a place of true collaboration from both perspectives. And so I think there also has to be an opportunity for grantees to say, we're still learning. We don't have it all figured out. And we're looking for a true, again, a true partner. And that partnership has to be about more than just money. And I think, so I think that's the thing is coming together in in true partnership, not just words, to learn. If you can learn about something together, I think that would make a huge difference. Thank you so much for your time, Suzanne. It's been a fascinating conversation and I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. At some time, I hope you make it back to Australia because something I'd like to to share with the audience is your connection with Australia. Perhaps tell us a little bit about your your Australian, I guess, heritage, if I may. I say I lived there during my key formative years. My father taught at what was then Queensland Institute of Technology, now Queensland University Technology, because we're fancy. My father was a professor. I grew up there and haven't been there in a very long time. So I would love to get back as well. Well, we look forward to welcoming you out here soon. And thanks again for your time today. That was Dr. Suzanne Walsh, president of Bennett College in North Carolina, with Ben Clark, head of philanthropy and social investment at Australian Executive Trustees. This has been the Giving Connect series of Philanthropy Australia's podcast. In next week's final episode, Ben's guest will be independent advisor, Sari Rankin. I'm Nick Richardson, and thanks for listening.